Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Again, welcome to all of you. Um, And uh, if this is your first time here with us, as I know it is for a couple of you, welcome. So glad you're here with us. And uh, hope you enjoy your your time worshiping God with us here today or uh, learning about God, as the case may be. And uh, what we've been doing as a church for the past several months is we've been working through studying the very first book of the Bible. And in this very first book of the Bible, we've come across all sorts of things. There's been uh, a lot uh, that we've, we've covered. And, and what we've been looking at for the past few weeks, um, I guess we're, we're only maybe two weeks into it, something like that. We're starting to study the life of Joseph. Because as we've worked through Genesis, we've come toward the end of the book And for the the last section of Genesis, it's all about this one particular man named Joseph. And even when I mentioned his name a couple of weeks ago, for some of you, it wasn't until last week that we looked at a story that you're like, oh, Joseph, I've heard this before. Joseph was the guy that you might have heard about when you were a little kid with the coat of many colors. All right? And we talked about how that was weird in this culture because you didn't have those kinds of things. You didn't just run to the mall and buy something bright and colorful. And so as we talked about that, we, we started to um, shape up in our mind who this kid was, Joseph. And last week, we left Joseph at really the lowest point of his 17-year-old life. He was only 17 when some pretty drastic things took place, meaning he was taken by his own brothers who conspired against him, harassed him, ripped off his coat of many colors, threw him in a pit, and worse, ended up selling him to slave traders. And so Joseph, as a 17-year-old, as this favorite of his father, this kid who'd been raised in this very affluent family, had everything he ever wanted, and even some things he probably didn't want, he was now taken and sold into slavery. All right? His his entire life was changed. And this event, part of what we talked about, was how this event shaped Joseph. Not just shaped him, it actually scarred him. As you can imagine, that would have scarred anyone. So he was forced to leave everything he'd ever known, dragged to a land that he'd never known, with no idea of what his future would hold. No clue. His entire world was turned upside down and inside out. And think about that. If you had been Joseph at 17 years old, you would have expected, you could have kind of sketched out what your life would have been. You knew, hey, dad loves me, my dad's wealthy, someday I'm going to inherit a big fortune. And not only that, I'm comfortable in this land, in this area, someday I'll, you know, find my soulmate and I'll settle down with my lands and my property and I'll just live happily ever after. It's all going to be good. This is my life. This is the trajectory that I'm on. I'm so lucky that I was born into this family at this time, in this place. It's all good. But then all of that, all of that is taken away immediately in a, in, a, in a single moment. Here's the thing about life. A lot of times, life happens without our permission. Doesn't it? Some of you experience that? Something comes along and something happens to you that transforms you, that shapes you, scars you, that you didn't see coming. 
that you had no plans that this is how life was going to go. This is how things were going to unfold. Could be tragedy in your life. Could be pain. Could be sickness. There's all kinds of things that could take place. In, in life groups um, that Jeff mentioned this week, as we were gathering together in smaller groups and talking about this, uh, some of you, as, as I did, heard some of these stories of life-shaping events that in many cases were not what people had hoped for, were not what had, was expected, not what was planned for. And, and they've been shaped. We've all been shaped by things that we had no control over. So the question is this. How do you move forward? How do you go beyond? How do you begin to heal from these things? How do you begin to uh, set out again and get up, pick yourself up and keep going? Well, I think that Joseph's life can teach us some really important life lessons, all right? And so today, um, we're going to pick up where we left off. So if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 39, okay? And so I'm going to start by reading these first few verses of Genesis 39, starting there in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. That's where he, the slave traders were headed. He'd been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. It says in verse 2, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now let's stop right there. Potiphar, this Egyptian, uh, this, this Egyptian kind of uh, high-ranking official, the captain of the guard is how it describes him there. Potiphar had no idea of the deal that he was getting when he bought Joseph. He had no idea. Um, being who he was and having a large household, uh, he probably had many servants. And so buying another young slave uh, was probably, uh, you know, just normal part of business for him. He needed people to work his estate and take care of his things. And so he was always probably doing this, buying this. But he certainly didn't expect to buy a slave with the skills and the talents that Joseph had. Now, if he had known Joseph's backstory, he might have, this might not have been quite the same sort of a surprise because, as we talked about, Joseph had been raised by this wealthy landowner with all sorts of people and property and livestock and goods to manage. So there's a very good chance that as he's coming up as a young man, his father Jacob is coaching him on all these things. Son, one day I'm going to be gone and I'm going to need you to take over the family farm. 
You're going to have to learn how to take care of these things and how to direct these servants and how to acquire this, these materials to do what we do. You're going to have to understand where we need to move our flocks around to take care of the lands that we have and to continue to raise these things. You're going to have to learn how to negotiate with the buyers and the markets and these things that are going on. So he'd been trained and raised up as his favorite son to know how to do all these different things, to administrate and coordinate things that very few people, especially not slaves, would have learned. So Jacob was passing down all of his knowledge and wisdom to his son. All right? So Potiphar wouldn't have known that. He just thinks, I'm buying some, it looks like a pretty healthy slave. Okay, great. I'll take him and put him to work in the field. But what he doesn't know is what's in his head, and he gets all of this benefit and this blessing that's happening. But most importantly, is actually listed there in verse 2, it tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. So not only did Joseph have all of this information and skill set and things that he, this, this way that he'd been trained, he also had the Lord with him. Now, let's face it, good education and hard work can go a long way in the world. But with the Lord, <laughs> uh, nothing is impossible. Joseph had been abandoned, no worse than abandoned. He had been sold by his own family, but the Lord was with him. I think that's one of the things that we sometimes miss when we read that first story that we read last week about him being sold by his brothers. You're like, man, there's no way God's with this kid. It looks like it's all good. It looks like everything's happening in his life. But when that happens, you've got to assume the Lord's not paying attention to what's going on here. How could this poor, innocent kid get sold into slavery? That's not okay. There's no way the Lord is with him. But that's not true. The Lord was with him. And here's the thing. If the Lord is with you, even the darkest places can turn into light. The blessing of God was not what Potiphar bargained for, but it was so obvious. Even to him, an Egyptian polytheist, it was so obvious that even he saw it. And he realized, this Joseph kid is going to be incredibly useful for me. And I'm going I'm to be able to use him for all kinds of things that I had not expected. I thought I had to, you know, call the local college and hire some administrator to take care of this. But no, this kid's ready to go. Um, we can work with him here. And so it tells us here that he promoted Joseph ultimately to the role of overseer of the house. In Potter's first opinion... Joseph was a huge success. He left everything to Joseph's hands. Everything. Except for one thing. Almost everything. That's what we're going to see in the next half of verse 6 on. So halfway through verse 6 it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now, that's the Bible's polite way of saying, let's have sex, <laughs> all right? And it goes on there, and it says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Now, it would have taken Joseph a little while to get established in this house. You know, it wasn't on day one that Potiphar bought Joseph and he interviews him in the, you know, the, the purchase interview and realizes, okay, I'm now putting you in charge of everything. That's not what probably happened. Time went by here in this, all right? And so it would have taken him a little bit of time to establish himself in the household, gain the trust of his master, and rise through the ranks. But we can still assume that he's probably in his early to mid-20s at this point, all right? Now, he is a slave, but he's in his physical prime. He's successful. He's talented. And on top of that, it tells us here, he's good looking. <laughs> and so the lady of the house notices. That's what's going on here. Now, I, I want you to understand this. Egypt in this period, and this uh, historically, this is known as the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, all right? Um, and the Middle Kingdom, we don't know exactly when this took place, this, all this story, but it was somewhere in the Middle Kingdom. And historians, as they, they've studied out Egypt, they've marked out the Middle Kingdom. It was between 2040 and 1782 BC, okay? So, but in this period of time, it, Egypt was very civilized, had uh, extensive laws and, and structures in place and government, the way that things functioned. All right, and historians have found that there were specific laws pertaining to adultery, okay? Marriage was regarded as a legally binding relationship, and there were strict laws against adultery, all right, in Egypt, in this ancient culture that they're in right here. So Potiphar's wife was clearly aware of what she was asking and the risk that she was taking, you know, you might read this and think, oh, well, it's, you know, some ancient culture, whatever. Joseph shows up there, and the lady's like, yeah, this is what I do with all these slaves, so this is just expected, and this is our culture. No, no, no. Even culturally there at that point, they're like, adultery is off the table, all right? Now, I want you to notice, though, that Joseph doesn't appeal to her sense of the law, but what does he do instead? He doesn't say, um, you're going to get in trouble for that. The magistrates are going to come and arrest us. He doesn't go there with any of that. He says some other things that are a little more obvious. First off, he says, you're married to my boss. <laughs> this is not a great idea. All right? Secondly, he also says, and what you're asking is wicked. But thirdly, he points out that this is sin against God. That's what he says here. He says, this is a sin against God. And this is the very first clue that we have of what Joseph's spiritual condition was like. All right? Now, nowhere in Genesis so far have, have we learned that Joseph had any relationship with God. I mean, he's in the Bible, so you think, okay, well, he's got some fit in the story here. But as we have seen in the Bible, there's a lot of people in the Bible that have no relationship with God whatsoever. We have people in the Bible that are anti-God, right? But Joseph here, we start to get a little picture of who he is in this. He was raised in Jacob's family, and as we studied through Jacob's life, we realized when Jacob was younger, he did not walk with the Lord. It wasn't until later that he started following God, all right? So he was raised in that household, um, but a parent can only take their children to a certain point. Because every single person has to make their own decision on whether or not they're going to follow after God. 
when we look at the history of some of Joseph's older brothers, it doesn't seem like they had any relationship with God. For those of you who have been here and, and heard some of these stories, let me take you back to a couple of them real quick. Levi and Simeon, two of Joseph's older brothers, they ended up murdering an entire village of men because the one guy was a rapist, right? And so they said, well, that's fine. You're going to rape our sister. We're going to go slaughter you all, okay? It doesn't exactly sound like some godly guys, all right? Reuben, the oldest of them, slept with his stepmother. Come on, guys. That's weird even for us in this era, <laughs> right? So that's not okay. Uh, Judah, last couple weeks ago, Judah was visiting a prostitute, Right? And not only that, except for maybe Reuben, the rest of them seem to be on board with selling their little brother into slavery. He's not coming from a group of like these wonderful, God-fearing, godly uh, family, right? So why would we think Joseph's any different than any of the older brothers that has had all the influence on him? Well, this is where we start getting a picture here. We see that something's different about Joseph. I got a feeling with Reuben... If Reuben had been in that situation and the, the master's wife's like, hey, let's do this, he'd be like, great, <laughs> sounds good to me. Let's just hide it from the boss. But not Joseph. Something's different here. And he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So here's what, what I think that we can pull out of this and understand with this. Joseph had a fear of God. He had a fear of God. Now, you can't, have a fear of something that you do not believe is true. This is what I mean by that. I have no fear of alien invasion. None. Fearless, guys. I don't think I'm going to go home and I'm not peeking out my back door before I walk into the backyard afraid that some little green people in spaceships might land in the backyard and beam me up and take me away. I'm not afraid of that. Call me crazy. I'm not afraid of it because I don't believe it to be true. I am, however, afraid of great white sharks. I know that they're real, and I love to play in their backyard. So I'm, a scare, I'm scared of great white sharks. Now, the, the thing about this is, what we see, Joseph has this fear of God because he believes that there is a God. And if anybody is going to start saying there can't be a God, it, you would think it'd be somebody like Joseph. Going through the things that he's just gone through, he's got to be like, there can't be a God. How do I end up here? How did this happen to me and that happened to me and all this? Joseph feared God. He believed in God. Now, the fear of God has different aspects, okay? In some sense, it is being afraid of God. In some sense, it's afraid of his judgment afraid of his power, afraid of offending God. Right? That's a fear of, of God. And all humanity should have a fear of God. Even if they're not real sure about who that God is or what his, their relationship is to the, him or her or whatever they think, um, they should have a fear of God. But some have convinced themselves that there is no God, so they have no fear of him. Just like some surfers tell themselves there are no great white sharks <laughs> so that they can paddle out without a conscience, right? But there are. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, he said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him 
who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think when Jesus is talking about fear there and fearing God, he's talking about the real, the truth, that there is a God that has something to do with your soul and eternity. Fear that God. Not only does it have that sense of being afraid, it can also mean a reverence of God, all right? And that's usually where you find in in the Bible, it's not fear God, be afraid of him. Usually in the Bible, it's talking about have a reverence for God, an honor for God, a sense of obligation to God. Joseph had this fear of God, both, both sides of it. He was probably afraid of, hey, this is a sin against God. I don't know what he might do to me if I sin against him in this way but also a reverence, um, knowing that he wanted to honor God with all of his actions, despite what this woman and his hormones were telling him, okay? Here's an example of of that type of the fear of God in Scripture, in Psalm 111.10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. What's it talking about here? It's saying, yeah, when you have a reverence for God, a recognition that there is a God, that he is above all things, then that's going to cause you to pursue wisdom and figure out, well, then if there is a God, how am I supposed to live? And how is it going to shape what I do and what I say and what I think? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon, who who spent a big chunk of his life trying to figure out what life was all about, um, we have it recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes. We went through that a couple years ago as a church. In, at the, toward the end of this whole experiment, life experiment, trying to figure out life, in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, he says this. He says, this is the end of the matter. If you want to hear what life's all about and how to figure it out, this is what he says. He says, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of mankind. Fear God and keep his commandments. If you can get that part down, the other stuff will sort its way out. So here's what I want you to, to recognize about this. Joseph, being here in Potiphar's house, seeing this success that came his way, uh, the, the fact that, that Potiphar continued to give him more and more opportunity and, and more and more um, uh, privileges and rights, that is actually not the real success with Joseph and and Potiphar. The greatest success that Joseph had while in Potiphar's household was his commitment to honor God. That was the greatest moment of success for him. Now, let's move on and read uh, verse 11 to 20. It says there, but one day when he, Joseph, went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She, the the wife, caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he, meaning her husband, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. 
As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Day after day, she pursues him. Day after day, he resisted. But it wasn't just willpower keeping him back. It was the, he was fueled by this fear of God and his desire to please God, not himself. So he ran away. In the, the New Testament, in the book of Timothy, which, which was written far after this story took place, but I think it actually, um, the writer was, Paul was remembering this story. He says here in 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, after he's just listed all this sort of sin, all these kinds of things that want to take us out in life, he says, but as for you, O man or woman of God, flee these things, run away from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is what Joseph did. He fled. He's like, okay, she's got to the spot now where she's like, I'm not taking no for an answer this time. You now with me. She grabs onto him and he's like, fine, I'm stripping out of this jacket and I'm running. (laughs) As far as I can, I'm getting away. But here's the thing. Even when we pursue the right things, even when we follow that verse from 1 Timothy, when we make the right choices, it doesn't always mean that things are going to work out perfectly. All of those years of hard work that Joseph had put in, trying to be a good worker, the success that he had gotten from his job, the faithfulness that he had with his boss, his unwavering commitment to God, all those things, and Joseph finds himself now locked up in prison. After all of that, success? What success? It's like I've done everything I can, and this is where I still end up. This is where I find myself. God teaches us through his word that his definition of success And the world's definition of success are different. That's important for you to understand. The world's view of success and God's view of success are different. Now, I'm not saying that they're opposite. In fact, in a lot of cases, they overlap. There are certain things that are successful in the world that we would view as successful that are absolutely what God would want for us. They're not opposites, but they're different. And there's, there's some differences involved here. And God tells us that what we need to really be able to see this well is we need a different viewpoint. All right. Have all of you, I'm assuming all of you have at some point in your life seen the moon from earth? Yes? Yes? You've looked up in the night sky and said, there's the moon. I want you to know that the moon is 238,900 miles roughly from earth. 238,900 miles, give or take, right? That's a long way. The circumference of Earth is about one-tenth of that, 24,855 miles. My point is this. That's 10 times the whole circumference of the Earth. That's how far it is to see the moon. But you can have that perspective to see something way out there. Now, if we were on the moon looking back at Earth, you'd then see 
this big, beautiful, blue planet, right? That's a different perspective and a different viewpoint than what we have in this room right now. We can only see so far in front of us and what's around us. There's a, there's a difference in, in our, our, our perspective. And God says, you need to have a different viewpoint. You have to have a broader picture of what's really happening in life if you're going to understand success. Because you may have this world, the, the, the blinders on to see, this is what the world's success is, this is where I have to get to, and if I get here, then I'll be happy, then I'll be fulfilled, and everything will work out perfect. But what God says is, no, actually, that in many cases, that's not at all what is going to fulfill you like you think it's going to. It's not going to, this sense of success and, and wholeness is not actually there. Instead, he calls us to have a different sense of who we are. And he wants us to see ourselves and our lives as he sees them. We tend to see ourselves in relation to other people. That's how we compare that's how we, we gauge our success most of the time. You know, when you're a little kid and you take a test, you, the teacher passes back the test. Back in the days when we had paper and would write things, different era, that's, that's what it was when I was. You know, you pass it back and all the kids in the class are like, what'd you get? Well, I'm not gonna tell you what I got until you tell me what you got, you know? Oh, I got this. Oh, well, I got that, you know? That we're comparing with each other of what it is. That's how we do things. And in an increasingly globalized world, you can compare yourself now with some kid in Taiwan <laughs> to say, well, what did he get on that test? And you jump to social media and there it is, you know, right? So we're competing with 8 billion other people trying to figure out how successful we can become. Do you realize kind of the absurdity of that? And even if you were number one of 8 billion even then, what you'll find is that success is really empty at the top. People have always attempted that. That was Solomon's whole experiment that we talked about. And what did he say at the end of it? He said, it's all vanity and chasing after wind. What, you're going to go catch the wind? Now what? It's gone already. God has something different in mind for you, a different type of success. What I want to describe today is a secret success okay something that is in your soul something that is deep a deep fulfillment jesus called it abundant life jesus said i'm coming to give people abundant life not just life you've already got that but an abundant life abundant life is found when we invite Jesus to enter into our lives, take away our sins, and begin transforming us. It's part of the process of what he wants to do in every human, which is spiritual formation. He takes the brokenness of who we are and begins to transform it and heal it and bring it to a place of wholeness, spiritually forming us in the process. On his way to prison, I really doubt that Joseph was thinking, oh, this is abundant life. This is what I'm living for. You know, I, obviously God's at work here. But because he was following God, more was happening than he could understand. God was at work 
even in this humiliating, life-altering experience. Now, I know some of the stories of the people in this room here today. I talk with you, I see you, I live life with you, I'm in community with you. So I know that many of you have been through some things in the past several months, several years, that are the types of life-altering experiences that are major, that are serious, that are, are heavy. And, and I will say this, I can't explain all of those things to you, but I do believe that God loves his children and I trust his word when he says that he will not leave us or forsake us. Hold on to God through those things. Hold on to him. He will be with you. That's exactly what we see here in verse 21. Read it with me. It says there in verse 21, but, so he's, he's now in prison. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. I have that underlined in my Bible. <laughs> and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now here's the thing. Nobody aspires to become successful in prison, right? If we went and interviewed all the prisoners in prison, most of them, if, cho if they could have the choice, either be very successful here in prison or get out, <laughs> most of them are going to say, get me out. I don't care to become the best prisoner. I just want out of here, okay? So that may not look all that great, but Joseph did not give up on the Lord, nor did the Lord give up on Joseph, even here in prison, even in this Egyptian prison, the Lord was with Joseph. And ultimately, I wish I could tell you, and so he was only there for 25 minutes and they freed him and let him go. No. Sadly, he would spend years of his life there in this prison. And as time went on, the Lord blessed Joseph and gave him favor and authority even there. And it tells us there that God was showing him steadfast love Love that doesn't move, love that doesn't waver, just steadfast love. Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, how was this steadfast love being shown to Joseph while he's locked up in prison? We don't know. How was Joseph being shaped through this experience? We don't really know. How was he being developed? Was it perseverance? Was it patience? Was God showing him how to have a, a, a prayer life because of all the isolation and solitude? I, I, I don't know. We don't know. But here's the thing. Even if you don't know what God is up to, his character doesn't change. Even if you can't make sense of the thing you're going through, what we know and believe to be true is that God does not change. He still has love. He still has mercy. He still can do a work, even an impossible work. His love is steadfast. And as we're going to see, this wasn't the end of God's plans for Joseph. One more thing before we finish here. I also want you to notice 
that Joseph responded to that steadfast love of God with steadfastness. I don't know about you, but on my way into prison, I would have been like, okay, I'm done with the whole God thing. <laughs> like, seriously. Like, what else can go wrong in my life? I'm, it, it's just not going to be good. It hasn't been good, and it's not going to be good. I just want to give up, throw in the towel, call it quits. But instead, what do we see from Joseph? We see him continuing to serve, continuing, him to, to, continuing to do what he knew was right. He continued to honor God with his life, even in the middle of the really hard place. So as we respond here today and we kind of figure out how we can apply this to our lives and bring all this together, I want to ask you guys this question. Where do you find yourself today? Where do you find yourself today? How are you living your life? Are you caught up in just this pursuit of worldly success? Or have you been choosing, making choices in your path that you're like, I'm doing my way, not God's way. I don't care about God's way. I'm gonna do it my way and I'm gonna figure it out. Maybe today is a day that you reconsider that path that you're on. Maybe today is a day where you consider re-aiming your life and looking for a secret success, an abundant life that God says is there for you. God might be calling you today to do that. And that may be a whole new concept, a whole new idea of God, like the Almighty, the one out there in the universe, he speaks to humans. Yes, yes he does. And he calls people to himself. Maybe that's what's happening. And if that's you here today, it's, it's actually, the Bible describes it as something very simple. We heard all about it at, at Easter, at the Easter message what he says is, look, human beings are, are, are born with a sin nature, a brokenness built into them at birth. And that sin nature separates us from God and having that relationship with God. And what the, the scripture tells us is God himself wanted to fix that problem. And so he sent his son Jesus to take away the, the thing that was between us and God, sin. And that's a whole other story, and, and we've studied it, but how and why that had to take place. But he sacrificed his own life to take away the sins of the world. But what that's done is that's opened up an opportunity for human beings to be in relationship with God. That's supernatural and incredible and kind of wild to think about it, but that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we can now have a relationship with God once our sins are taken away. So what do we do to get our sins away? We repent of those sins. We turn away from our own path and our own way and we turn to God. And we say, God, I'm giving you my life. I'm pursuing you with, with my life instead of pursuing me and what I want and what I need and what I think is going to fulfill me. That's the call. It's that simple. We repent and we turn toward God. So if that's you today, maybe today is the day for you to come to God, ask him to cleanse you from all that sin, all that mess, all that history, all that past, that past, and put you on his path. Others of you, though, find yourself in a very different place than that. Maybe you've followed God, and you've been on that path, 
and you've landed in prison and you're wondering, how did I get here and how do I get out of here and is there a God who's even paying attention to me anymore? Because this is heavy and this is hard. And, and for you, your heart hurts this morning. But also what the Bible tells us is when you hurt, he hurts. And when you weep, he's weeping. And when you are in pain, he is in pain. So for you, I'd encourage you to, uh, to ask him to remind you of that steadfast love. Joseph is locked up in prison, alone, and wonders how in the world did life get this way. But what does it tell us? The Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. Ask God to show you that love, to restore to you the bigger perspective. And I'd also, um, one final thing with that, if that's you, I'd encourage you to continue to serve and minister and love, just like Joseph did. When things are bad in life, our tendency is to just pull the covers over our head and wait for the storm to pass, right? I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to look at anybody. I don't want to say anything or do anything. I just want to wait till this is all over. But sometimes, many times, the way through the valley is by putting one foot in front of the other. And we've got to keep on going. We've got to keep following the path. So no matter where you find yourself here today, I I hope that um, this message can encourage you and challenge you and put you on his path. Let's pray together. God, I do thank you this morning for your word. And I thank you for the lessons that we can learn from the life of Joseph. And God, I know that, uh, that, that his story is, is one that was heavy in many ways. But I also know that I'm here with a, a bunch of people in this room that have some heavy stories themselves, that have been in some hard places and, and going through and gone through some really hard things. And so, Lord, all of us are encouraged today knowing that you are alive that you're a well and you are paying attention to what's happening. Even though there's lots of times that we can't see you, we can't comprehend what you're doing. It doesn't make sense to us. But you are here and you do care and that your love is steadfast. It stays firm. It doesn't shake. It doesn't wilt. It doesn't fall apart. It doesn't crumble. But it's real. And Lord, my prayer today is that every single human being in this room would know your love. I pray, God, that by your spirit, and I don't understand how this all works. It is, it's beyond my comprehension. But what I've experienced and what many of my brothers and sisters have experienced here in this room is we can experience you, God. Humans can touch the divine. And Lord, I pray that today, you would do that very thing by your Holy Spirit. We're not working up emotions and trying to stir people into some sort of a a frenzy. We're just asking you, the real God, to do a real thing in our hearts today. And so, Lord, we just pray that, 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 that you would be here among us, that your spirit would touch hearts. And I pray, Lord, that every person would experience your love today. Whether that is the loving request that you're laying on somebody's soul right now asking them to leave their path and to come follow your path 
or it may just be uh, the, the loving response where you're reminding that person that you are with them, that you will never leave them or forsake them, that you have a plan and that you are in control. Either way, Lord, pour out your love upon us. Let us experience your love here today. And I pray, God, that we would be able to rejoice in you and uh, be encouraged and strengthened in you. And it is in your son Jesus' name that I pray these things.